Our reading of Scripture is Romans chapter 4. A while back we considered uh, the last portion of chapter 3 of Romans, in which the gospel is proclaimed and expressed, explained. And in Romans 4, we'll read the whole chapter as we continue on focusing upon the themes of justification by faith. We are also considering Lord's Day 24. That makes the difference between works and faith. And this chapter really helps us regarding these truths. So verse 1 of Romans 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath where of to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. But the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him, Whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. 
And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not, impute, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Amen. May God bless his word. And let us sing together. Dear congregation, we, we have these two words as a summary of the theme that is before us, faith and works. And what faith and works in, in the hearts of men and in the concepts of people throughout all ages, throughout every culture, has sought to procure one thing. It has sought to procure righteousness. The mass majority of people um, that have lived throughout history and who are even living today are applying one of these words, hoping for righteousness, hoping for a right standing. And then there are others who are using the other word and the other grace. One is merit. One is grace. God's word makes it very clear which is the one by which righteousness can be obtained. Um, When we were in Lord's Day 23, if we were to read question 60, page 51, very simple question, how art thou righteous before God? And the beginning of the answer is only by a true Faith in Jesus Christ. By faith. But the sad thing is, even as we look at the Bible's religion, and what I mean by this is how men and women were taught by God to live in the Old Testament, so that was Judaism, we could call. It was Israel's religion. It was God's way of how you and I are to live. And in that religion, there was the promise of the Messiah. There was the promise of the Christ. So in many ways, you could say it was Christianity. It was Christianity before Jesus because He was promised. And now we're living Christianity after Jesus because the promise was fulfilled. But in both dispensations, there were struggles in the hearts of people to understand this simple reality that the righteous shall live by faith. And it's what we, we hope to consider today and even see a little bit of the history and how easy it is for, for human hearts to corrupt into a works-based salvation. And we will see what happens when, when 
when that is the case. And our two points will be justification by works. We'll, we'll look at works itself and the damage that it does and how it leads not to righteousness, only to more sin. And then our second point, justification by faith. And we're keeping to Romans 4, like I said, because we, we were looking at Romans 3 when we considered the reality of justification by faith. But as you see in our, in our catechism, Lord's Day 24 con- continues the thought of how this righteousness is obtained. The question is, but, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Why, why can't it at least help? And then when the answer is given, it's interesting that they want to emphasize because when this was written, beloved, the the mass majority of what was considered Christian in the European context had all gravitated to work salvation. So they want to make this very clear. So they say, what? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? And the simple answer, this reward is not of merit, but of grace. When, why, why am I choosing chapter 4? Not, not only to continue where we were in chapter 3, but because chapter 4 is the chapter in all of the Bible that makes this reality of a righteousness that is imputed more clear. In the 25 verses that we have read, 11 times a word in Greek is translated in several different ways. So in English, it's a little hard to keep track. But every time you read the word reckoned, the word counted, the word impute or imputed, and so these four words appear 11 times, they are all Translating the same word in Greek that speaks of crediting to, or counting as, or considering to one's account. And, and boys and girls, here's the illustration. This is perhaps one of the best analogies of what we're talking about. The word in Greek is uh, an accounting term. It is the idea of, of math. And, and it's in this sense, it's in a financial way. So um, if you have someone who's a very generous friend, and there are such people who want to give you a gift, you have a bank account, it's in your name, and this gift, and this friend, he deposits into your name. When it leaves that man's account, it leaves with his name because the money is his. But then he credits that to your account. Let's say it's $2 million. And the moment it comes into your account, even though you may read where it came from, once it's credited to you, it is yours. Now you look at that $2 million um, value and you know full well it is not because of your merit. It is not because of your labors. You know it's a gift but it's fully yours. And and this is what we're speaking of theologically, a righteousness that is infinitely more valuable than $2 million because $2 million will not get you to heaven, but the righteousness of Christ will. There are people with millions of dollars 
who have died and left that money in the bank for other people. But if they died without Christ, they have no more life. They are in condemnation, eternal death. So, beloved, what I'm speaking of is really the most valuable thing you could ever obtain, righteousness. Righteousness from God. We talked about this righteousness in that sermon about three weeks ago. The righteousness of God. It is perfect. It is complete. It is majestic. We're not talking about being made a little better than what you and I am. We're talking about receiving a righteousness that is heavenly, that is pristine, that is perfect, that is complete. And you see, this is what happens. God graciously, spiritually, spiritually reckons it to your account he deposits it to your name and you see it and you realize it is not mine i did not work for it i could not ever have it through my own efforts but it is mine it was credited to me that's why we use the analogy of of a cloak of righteousness that covers us We, we use the analogy of just having received it so that in the sight of god it is what he sees this is what this chapter is all about. And, and so let us, let us begin looking at justification by works. And then we will look at justification by faith, going back to this very theme of how we receive this righteousness. But what are some things we can think of? Justification by works is the religion of man. Every human religion is based on works. This is the religion that man has created. It is the best that man can produce. There there is no religion in the world that comes anywhere close to Christianity, which is the thought that God is gracious and will save me with me doing absolutely nothing other than accepting what Christ has already done to me. Absolutely nothing. No labor, no work. And then this, of course, the thought that the faith that you have, you acknowledge that it's not your own. There is no religion in the world that puts all this glory on God. Every religion in the world puts the glory on man. It is a salvation to be received by the best of men or women, by by the most obedient, by the holiest of all, by the one who achieved the highest level of religiosity or of knowledge and insight of morality, the most spiritual, the one who deserves it, the one who paid in more money, the one who has done most good. Humanity has always developed these kinds of religions. Performance, achievement, payment, degrees, obedience to all the commands. If you look at the Encyclopedia Britannica, where it puts every single religion into certain camps, they arrive at three. When you analyze it better, the first two are basically works salvation. They're based on ceremonies, rituals, self-effort, even the acquisition of esoteric knowledge, like knowing mysteries, and because you know it, you arrive at a different level, and then you know more mysteries, and then you arrive at a different level, and in their minds is the fantasy that you're just slowing, saving yourself. 
Or, or ascetic discipline where you make your body suffer and, and suffer as if to pay for the sins that it has committed. And, and even heroic death so that now that that person died, having done what it did, now maybe he saved through that effort. And in the third category in the Encyclopedia Britannica is those who believe they're saved through divine help. And then it lists Christianity and Judaism. It does have in a list there also Islam. Because yes, Islam speaks of God's help. Even Mormonism speaks of God's help. Even Jehovah's Witness speaks of God's help. But it's interesting, even Britannica has Islam in those upper columns as well. And the sad thing is that even Christianity and Judaism, as we're going to see briefly, they were corrupted. Let's look at Judaism first. This is truth corrupted by man. Judaism is, comes from God's word. We, we hear Moses establishing how sacrifices are to be made and how service is to be performed to the Lord. But little by little, the focus was not God, it became man. And in as a summary, by, by the time of Jesus, we know that there were all of those party, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, there were the Zealots, but you need to understand there were the pious Jews as well, and they were simply that, believing Jews. Jews who believed that the Messiah would come and kept to that simple faith. It wasn't the sacrifice that saved them. It wasn't their tithing. It wasn't their, their amazing life. No, it was the Messiah who was promised. Those were the believing Jews. But talk about the Sadducees. What was salvation for them? For them, salvation was the here and now. Remember, they didn't believe in an afterlife nor spiritual life. So really, salvation had to do with the pleasures of this world. That's why they were really concerned about riches. They were the wealthy of the day. They were worried about politics and power because then they could have the closest to what would be some form of salvation, a better life now. We, we have many in the world who are, in essence, Sadducees. The Pharisees saw their obedience as their salvation, so that their legalistic living and the obedience um, of the law, their um, fasting two or three times a week and giving the tithe, remember, even of the little herbs that they have in their gardens. Jesus never said that was wrong. He said this do. But, but to think that those little leaves are saving you because you're paying your dues, that, that is what's wrong. They knew how to keep the Sabbath entirely. They had strained the gnat and they thought they were saved. Because they worked hard at it. The Essenes, they were in a sense like hyper-Pharisees. And they thought it wasn't just their salvation by their works, but also by their suffering. And so they had that ascetic living of, they were kind of like the original monks. that They would go to the um, wilderness and live there. And they, they thought, you know, if we suffer enough, we, we will be saved. And the Zealots, we have many of those today, they saw their salvation in the independence of the Israelite state. Independence from any oppressive regime. This was, in essence, politics salvation. 
They wanted a free Israel, and that was, in a sense, salvation to them, a country that had no oppressors over them. And then there were the pious Jews. See, all of these that I have described, it is that religion of works. It is due, and then they were hoping for salvation. If we have a rebellion and kick out the Romans, we'll have salvation. If we're rich enough and have the prominent power in the temple, the Sadducees thought, that will be our salvation. But the pious Jews, they were like Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 6, we read what Paul said in Romans 4, 3. Look at Romans 4, 3. For what saith the scripture? And this is Genesis 15, 6. This is, it's very important to bring your own Bible. And I believe we should be allowed to put this little note. If you don't have this note already in your Bible, or use a pencil if you want to be very careful in your Bible. Write in Romans 4, 3, Genesis 15, 6. Because this is the quote from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. See, Abraham was not a works salvation man. Like the Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and Zealots. He was a pious Jew. He understood that salvation was through faith. And he was not the only one. And we have some names in the Bible. Um, When we read of men and women like Ruth and Boaz and David and Jonathan and Daniel and his friends, those were pious Jews. They, They weren't thinking that their salvation would be through their, their works. They understood it was through the promises. And then the New Testament begins, and we have, we're introduced to these pious Jews, Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah. And then they have John the Baptist, who becomes, of course, a pious Jew, the last one from the Old Testament. Then remember Simeon and Anna. They had been living their lives Um, believing in the Messiah to come. They they were Christians, you could say, in that sense that that they, they were Messianic Jews. They believed in the coming of Christ. They were not self-righteous. They were not believing in work salvation. They were knowing salvation was through faith. But it had been corrupted. They thought it was their works. Many others did. But come come Christianity. And you, you look at the apostles, and as they're preaching and as they're teaching, they, they, they have learned that Paul himself came from that works salvation scenario. And, and if you want to hear his own personal story, he, he'll write it in the epistles of how he believed he had it. He thought he was righteous. But then he realized he had never even approached it. He hadn't even begun because as, as we read in, um, in the Heidelberg Catechism, wh- why isn't it that our good works cannot achieve something? And the answer, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect. Not just a little perfect. Absolutely and in all respects conformable to the divine law, and that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And this is what Paul says in his witness. He was saying, I discovered that everything that I had, that I put so much weight on, that I was circumcised the eighth day, that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that that I was even a Benjamite, I put that all in a pile, and I realized it was just dung, as good as that. 
Because, see, when you, when you think your works will save you, that becomes like one giant devil that will never save you. Because it keeps you from looking to Christ. Even if they're good things. It's just like this. If you come to church, it is a wonderful thing, beloved. But if you think that sitting upon that pew so many hours a Sunday is what will save you, that becomes a sin. Because it's not a savior. But Paul didn't stop reading scripture. He didn't start um, going against the law. No, he, he started now obeying it and following it out of gratitude. And beloved, and you know, for us who have, for, for many who have grown up with that third part of what the catechism teaches, the gratitude, misery, deliverance, and gratitude. Never take for granted, beloved. I know many of you were raised where this triad is spoken of, where it's so familiar to you. Misery, when we understand that we are sinners and we need salvation, we look to Christ, we're delivered. He saves us. He forgives us. And now we have a life of gratitude to be lived. The simple placing it in that way beloved, takes a load off our backs because we realize what obedience is. We're not working toward anything. We're simply saying thank you to the one who did the work, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what will keep us from what happens if we're not careful. Now, let me talk a little bit about Christianity. I I gave a little example about um, Judaism and how it corrupted into work salvation. Now, just a little, a little narrative concerning Christianity. You know, typically, we go to the Middle Ages and we think that's where it all started, but it's not really true. It started little by little, even during the times of the persecution. Look at all that was happening. Um, the church was being persecuted from almost all of the years 200 and into the 300. It is 315 where there was a sanctioning for Christianity. So for basically 100 years, like the end of a year 100, all of the year 200 and the beginning of year 300, there were massive persecutions, sometimes more, sometimes less. There are around 10 cycles of persecution from the Roman Empire. And Christians were being martyred. So that's one category. As time went by and they thought of this man and this woman and how they died so heroically, such an example. They were martyrs. Their names were first honored. Before too long, they were venerated. And then after a while, they were even prayed to and seen as men and women who could answer prayer. Their merit had been so great, they are in heaven and they can bless us somehow. Especially if that was a martyr close to where you lived and you could maybe gravitate to that martyr because he had a special love for your village and your people. That's salvation by works. That these people had lived so well that they are now in that category of 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 Savior, even to save us, to help us in some ways. And let me give you a little, a little narrative about how men were 
started to be seen, even if they weren't martyrs, but just by how they were living, that also put them in that extra category of superheroes of the church. Um, In the years 200, there was one Paul of Thieves. He lived 90 years in a grotto, in a little cave, by a spring and a palm tree until year 340. Now, this kind of life began to be seen as impressive. And it was seen as this is what faithfulness is. And people would go to these monks and want to learn something from there. There would be certain monks that would start seeing all the people and they they would flee to somewhere else because they were wanting a time of contemplation, a life of, of loneliness, so they could just focus on God. And, and that kind of living was now being seen as the kind of life that is really magisterial. And, and again, it began as, as an honor. Before too long, it was a veneration. Before too long, it was an idolatry. There was St. Anthony. He was born in 251. In 270, his parents died, and he thought, I'm going to imitate exactly what Jesus told that rich young ruler to do. So he sold everything he had. He left a little portion to take care of his little sister, but everything else he sold, and he went to be a monk. He retired into the wilderness. He inhabited sepulchers, later in the ruins of castles by the Red Sea. He rarely returned to civilization. Um, Once in 311, he went to Alexandria, hoping to become a martyr, because that also had penetrated the mindset of the people. If I die as a martyr, I will show my love for Christ. There were emperors who had to prohibit that. And they were so annoyed at these Christians who wanted to die in this way that they would not give them what they wanted. It was he. In their minds, they were so confused. They thought, this is what will please my Lord. But Jesus never taught us to, to pursue being a martyr. He told us even to flee a city if we are being pursued. In 351, he returned again to town. He was 100 years old because he heard of Arianism and he knew the truth that Jesus is divine. Arianism was that heresy that Jesus was a human and he felt, well, maybe I should go back to town to defend the truth. So he did something good there and he frequently um, had visitors into the wilderness um, and these people would then go elsewhere and then talk about the lives of these monks. This is St. Anthony. And then you may have heard of Benedict of Nursia. Now, this is um, in the years 500, basically. He was born in 480. And now the whole concept of being a monk had become elaborate. This Benedict of Nursia, he pretty much codified the life of a monk. He started um, cloisters. He started um, other places where people could join together as a family. Um, And he developed that rule, the rule of St. Benedict. And that rule would have everything very spelled out how the monks would live. For you to enter, there'd be a time of probation. You couldn't just start. And once you were ready, you would make three vows. You had to vow perpetual adherence to the order. You had to vow voluntary poverty and chastity that you would never get married. And you had to vow absolute obedience to the abbot. Abbot was like the father, the leader of that 
monastery and as, as a very representative of Christ. And once you were there, there would be activities. Seven hours a day, there would be spiritual activities, um, prayer and psalm singing and meditation. And then other six to seven hours would be physical labors. When monasteries began with the rule of St. Benedict, as, as harsh as we hear it to be, there were elements that were very good and beneficial, especially to the society at the time, because it provided some kind of structure. So they, they had a wrong view of seeing certain things, but God was blessing it because um, He was merciful to them. And, and in many of these, the physical labor is that they taught. They taught little children. These monasteries became the libraries of the places, of the towns. And, and one very good thing they were doing was transcribing the Bible and other literature, preserving literature. The monasteries were especially beneficial during the times of the great invasions of our barbaric people because as they came, even although, of course, a few places here and there, some monasteries were attacked in, in a great way. Many of them were not attacked and were allowed to remain. They were not seen as the castles where the kings were, and so much literature was preserved. There, there were all of those good things and good sides but it did establish the mindset that the more rigorous life I live, the better hope I have of being saved. And so by the years 1,300 or so, Christianity had clearly developed into do this and you're more guaranteed. And the do was summarized into the sacraments. If you go to the Lord's Supper, if you baptize your child, if you go to confirmation, which would be the first Lord's Supper that you would receive, if you confess your sin regularly, if you do the penance that the priest ordains, and if you obtain the last rites, you, you could be without no guarantee even up to your death. You could be dying and in your deathbed, and you still had to think, well, I need one more thing. I might die within a few weeks. Let me call the priest to do the last rites on me. And that, that was seen in a sense like a last baptism. You had the baptism when you were born. Sins were purged away from that. They really seen it, saw it as an as a infusing of grace kind of way. And then here you are about to die. You need your sins forgiven again. Call the priest and maybe that can happen. There, there was this clear understanding in a sense that salvation is in my hands. I just need to do the right things. Now, perhaps the worst thing in this whole way of thinking Every religion where man is in the sinner is that God becomes your debtor. See, this is a, this is a currency, right? You're, you're paying. You're paying for that salvation through your efforts, through your promises, through the ceremony, even through money. And, and you're making God your debtor. And so he better give what... He has promised because I'm doing everything I can do. And what starts to happen in this system is that God's character in the heart of the one who's in that false religion, he completely is defaced. So that, let's say, with all this payment, if you're not seeing a comeback, if you're not seeing blessings being poured upon your life, soon you'll be angry. 
You'll develop an anger at a God who's not paying the debt that he now has with you. Another problem will be pride in the heart of this person and arrogance because you're just walking around thinking of all that you can glory in because of your accomplishments. And of course, another character of those who are in this false religion is hypocrisy. It's abundant because all these people are pretending to be what they aren't. They're pretending to have done what they really haven't. Oh, but I served the Lord. No, you didn't. The moment you go to church or say a prayer or if you give an offering and all you have in your heart is your performance and you're trying to be saved through those, you're not truly serving the Lord. You're serving yourself because you're just doing that in order to receive something. So it's a hypocrisy and a lot of lack of love. Because see, in this system, there are those who, who, who have done a lot more. They maybe had more money, so they gave more. And maybe they had more sensitivity to, to religious things, so they, so they joined a monastery. Or they are like a Paul who is very zealous for the church and, and for, for the, the synagogues. And, and what starts happening is this class that is more spiritually high looks upon those who simply don't get it. And if I have done so much, why has he or why has she done so little? And there's a lot of judging and there's a lot of arrogance and there's a lot of lack of patience with those who struggle in their sins. So these people who live this way are too busy working for their salvation to have any kind of love or pity for others. They have little time for sinners who keep backsliding. They, they think, I have made it with so much sweat. Why don't they simply try as hard as I did? They're proud of their achievements. And they're usually angry with God if, if they don't feel that God is blessing them. Because after all, they, they, they are so worthy. See, it's, it's, it's almost that kind of attitude that the authors of the Heidelberg are placing Like someone who would say in question 63, What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this life and in the future? See, it's, 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 it's like the authors are putting the words of that kind of people who have that kind of misinformation. These are people who thought that maybe their works had some place in meriting something from God. And, and they come with this question, What? Do not our good works merit? That's a little something of that kind of character. You, you start demanding from God. I've paid so hard. All my life I've been doing all these things. And the remedy is simply learning this. No, this reward is not merit, but it's of grace. So let's go now to our second point, justification by faith. See, Abraham is the example that Paul gives. He says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore to glory, but not before God. Now, you could be confused, because you could look at Abraham and say, Well, look at everything he did. He left Ur, and he went all the way to Canaan. And, and there, he, he had to um, do so many things in obedience to God. God told him to put his son on the altar, and he did that. And many could look at that and say, He definitely was saved by works. Paul is getting exactly, exactly him and saying, well, if he had anything 
that he did by works, well, then he could glory. See, that's always a problem. If salvation were by works, we would glory in what we do. But we can't glory in anything we do because it's not through works. And then he reads in verse 3, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. See, it wasn't his effort that gave him righteousness. It was his faith. And then what is very precious is what Paul does in verses 10 through 12. Because there he points to another work. He points to circumcision. God told Abraham to circumcise. And he did. And so the way that the Jew would think is, well, of course he was saved. God told him to circumcise. And he did. So God saved him. But what Paul is doing here is helping us understand even the history of Genesis. Genesis 15 is where verse 3 happens. So it was before circumcision was even introduced. There's a verse in Genesis declaring Abraham righteous before he's even circumcised. And and this is what you need to grasp. Without that marker upon him, in a sense he was representing Jews and Gentiles because that sign had not yet been given. And he was declared righteous before that work of circumcision. This is exactly what he's referring to. Look at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised. He wasn't even circumcised and he was declared righteous. See, in the mindset of the Jew, this this would play very powerfully because a Jew would think of an uncircumcised man and say, he's unrighteous. Well, that's who Abraham was. He wasn't circumcised. But God said, righteous. You see what Paul is doing? That he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that would be Jews, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, meaning Gentiles. Beloved, this this is very important because the mass majority of us are Gentiles. That's everyone who's not a Jew. And this is the hope that we have, that Abraham is our father. The promises given to him are for us as well, where it's for all who believe. And then verse 12, And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. And how do you walk in the steps of this man when he wasn't circumcised? Well, you do what he did. He believed. And so we believe. And when you believe, you're not working. Because faith is not works. When you believe, you're simply expressing a gift that you've been given. Since faith is a gift of God, He gives you that, and you use it. It's like opening and unwrapping a gift, and instead of leaving it on the shelf, you wear it. It's a shirt, and so you put it on. It's a sword, so you use it. It is food, so you will eat it. Well, faith is given as a gift, and you use it. How do you use it? You believe. You trust. You embrace the gospel. 
You say, yes, Lord, I believe that Thou hast sent Thy Son to die for me. And yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Why am I saying this? Look at verse 24. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, this righteousness that will be given, if we believe, and then it specifies, on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So you see all these things are what you have to believe. You have to believe that God sent Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus came. You have to believe that He is God. You have to believe that God sent Jesus to rise from the grave. This is what verse 24 says. On Him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Beloved, so I ask now, this this is a simple application in all of this. Are you saved? If you are saved, why? What do you believe saved you? Maybe in your heart you're saying faith. Faith in who? Christ. Who gave you that faith? The Father. As long as your eyes are fixed upon Jesus, you are truly saved. But beloved, notice how very easy it is to corrupt ourselves into the religion of man. The moment you are to say, well, I know God sent Jesus, but my sins are so great. My sins are so many. The moment you're doing that, you're not looking to Jesus and you are looking to self. It it sounds pious, it even sounds humble, but it's actually proud. It is actually denying what the Father has done and pointing to yourself as if you have a problem too big for Jesus to solve. Or you're saying that God is not so loving as to save you because in a sense you feel you've sinned away any hope of salvation. But see, the very act of in that direction is the salvation of the world's way. Because let's try to fix that problem. Then let's say, yes, your sins are very many. And if, if you're, if you're f- trying to find a way that will make you perhaps acceptable for Jesus, is that what you want? Okay, let's work on that. Let's stop wor- sinning that way. Let's now reform it somehow. Let's do some counseling. Now do you think Jesus will receive you? Maybe, maybe I need some more counseling, some more reformation. So you're just trying to save yourself. You're just being a monk out in a monastery somehow and trying to suffer enough in order to be saved. That's the salvation of the world. And it is no salvation. You are looking to works. Maybe I'll repent enough and then come. Maybe I need to cry enough and then come. Well, I need to at least stop that sin. How can I dare come before the Lord with that sin? Okay, we'll go. Go try. What are you going to do? You're going to have to work. Work salvation. God's word is always saying stop. If you're going to mend yourself before you come to Jesus, you're never going to come to Jesus. You need to stop. You need to look to Jesus and acknowledge He did everything. And there on the cross, He was a sin offering 
sufficient for every single soul. If you come to Him and repent of your sins and place Him as it were like a burden at the very foot of the cross and say, Lord, this is all I have to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Then you began to understand salvation by grace. When you see that the weight of that sin is great, just put it all the more upon the feet of Jesus. Do you see how this gives him glory? Because you are with that very confession saying, Lord, I believe that thy death on the cross is that powerful to forgive even this sin. And I don't hide this one either because I know you are powerful to forgive it. And I know that your suffering was so great that all of my sins, as wicked as they are, they will all be cleansed because this is how gracious thou art. This is how glorious thou art. How merciful. You see, when a sinner comes with all of the sins unpacked upon the foot of the cross, you need to understand how that pleases him. He sees that you believe how powerful, how loving, how gracious He is. But if you keep, as it were, this sin, you're you're literally saying, "I, I don't know if you suffered enough for this one. And that's where we put it, trying to be humble, but we're really not. What I believe is one big reason why we don't put that last sin at the foot of the cross is because we're saying, this one is too dear, I want to keep it. Maybe I can give some allegiance to the crucified, but I can keep this bosom sin because I like it so much. All of those people who are in work salvation, they're not humble. They're proud. They're trying to be saved through their monkery and the wilderness and their suffering and with their tears. And in their pride, they think, somehow I'll obtain it. They're not bowing to King Jesus, who did everything. And they don't want to give Him the glory for everything. And beloved, we, we are so thankful. This, this is a perfect time to be in Lord's Day 24, where we're looking at justification by faith. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. The Reformation in 1500 was God's revival of religion. Christianity had basically almost completely, it was hard to find a soul that had a gracious spirit, like someone who understood, I am saved by the grace of God. Almost every Christian you met felt they needed to do those things or else there'd be no hope. And Luther was one of those. He was one who was completely into that system. And yet the Lord was dealing with his heart, so he he wanted deliverance. He had something of Christ. And, And we find people in his way who did know the gospel because there were some who would say to Luther, but Luther, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the Lord dealt with him, and he saw. It was even through Romans that he saw all the truth surrounding this righteousness that we receive by faith and not by works. The Reformation was a movement of God to bring back God to the center of salvation. 
And ever since then, it's been now 500 years, and the Lord's been blessing. There have been many um, churches that have been faithful to this reality. And, and this, beloved, is, is why, if ever you question, why do we go through a Heidelberg from time to time? It is to be reminded of something because a church learned that if we don't do this to some degree, as regularly as we can, we will gravitate to what happened in the history of the church in the years um, 1,000 and then 200 and three, 1,300 became so dark. And these are helps to make us go back to these doctrines that are foundational, that are important. Salvation is by faith, by God's grace alone. Let me read a quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and then I'll end with a little poem from Toplady. Martin Lloyd-Jones, expressing these very truths, said, As Abraham of old believed what God had said to him, You and I must believe this, for this is what God is saying in the resurrection. This is the special, particular Christian faith. This is the thing that makes a man a Christian. Not only believe in God, it is to see that your entire salvation is in Jesus Christ and in Him crucified and risen again from the dead and to believe that and to trust to that alone. That is what is counted to us for righteousness. The Christian believes that God has imputed his sins to Jesus Christ and that God has also reckoned the righteousness of Jesus Christ to him. Justification is a declaration of God himself from the throne of glory that all who believe in Christ in this way are freely forgiven that all their sins are blotted out, more that He clothes them with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His Son. The blessed truth. This is what salvation is. And I just end with, with one of the hymns of Top Lady. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Notice that one little word, my Savior's obedience and blood. Not just the blood, but His obedience. His obedience is our righteousness. His blood is where our sins went, imputed to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee for this rich and glorious God-centered salvation where we are in many ways a spectator and we respond in faith because, Lord, Thy Spirit bids us to. Lord, we pray that Thy Spirit would work in the hearts of those who not yet are saved. Oh, Lord, Would thou speak faith to the hearts? Open eyes that are shut. Lord, we pray that thou would bring life from the dead, that thou would convict sinners of sin. And in this conviction, Lord, that they would not be in despair. We we know, Lord, that Satan would tempt them to think there is no hope. But, Lord, open their eyes to see that they would give glory to Thee. They would only honor Thee if they trust Christ with their sins as well. 
Do, Lord, this work, we pray, all for thine honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.